show here on a Monday night. It's Nick Tobato here with Josh Parrish. We're doing things a little bit on the fly. We had this intro lined up in the queue and it didn't even play. So luckily enough, I had YouTube wrapped in the background. And now uh, you managed to get the uh, watermark version. Yes, I did. So definitely we're going to have to work on that for next time. But hey, good vibes. Bakura, our producer, said this is so depressing. It, but in reality, I think it just sounds nice. I think it's a lament for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's departure from Maybe Manchester it's just United. Fitting. It's just fitting. <laughs> um, big show today planned. Uh, we're obviously going to cap off all the things that happened on the weekend. Start off with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's departure from Manchester United. Xavi's first game at Barcelona. City, our title race has been completely blown open. But at 7.30, we'll be joined by BBC Scotland's Chris McLaughlin to dive into all things Scottish football, uh, especially with the goings-on with Celtic, Ange Postacoglu, Martin Boyle booking a, a date against Ange in the Scottish League Cup final. And might even duck into Rangers and see what's going on there after Stevie G was uh was well he didn't get the ass he actually decided to move yeah. on and now it's the Giovanni Van Bronckhorst era and if also, anything he gave Rangers the ass he sure did and he's Bye. gone to the Aston Villa and he's headed off uh obviously the down Aston to the, villains the villains yeah he's a bit of a the Aston now, Villa villains yes yeah, that's it say. yes <laughs> I'm so like I, whenever I hear West Ham now and I hear the West Ham Hammers it, it almost has become <laughs> sort of second nature to just call them the West Ham Hammers um and then later on in the show we'll Dive into all things UEFA for Champions League. The fifth match day. We're getting towards the end of the group stage. Some exciting fixtures throughout all eight groups. But Josh, let's start off with the big news from the weekend. Usually we'd save this for the Premier League, the EPL show on Wednesday night mm-hmm. with Nick Hughes. Um, but Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has moved on um, after their 4-1 thrashing at Vicarage Road against Watford. Claudio Ranieri came, he saw and he conquered. And he was the one to drive the dagger in the heart of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Um, and it looked like he had a dagger driven right through his heart when Manchester United released a sit-down interview with him. It made us all feel quite bad mm. to an extent, just seeing Ole oh so emotional. Um, but they did announce that Michael Carrick will become the interim manager now for the next couple of weeks, and then they'll hire an interim boss till the end of the season. Feels like deja vu yet again. And then they'll bring in someone on a permanent basis at the end of the season. They almost went my headphones. But Josh, as our resident Manchester United fan... Um, how how have you sort of summed up the past 24 hours? And I guess really the Oligona Solskjaer era as a whole. Uh, well, if you were watching the National Curriculum last night, you would have seen my reaction to the news breaking live. I actually did fist pump, um, <laughs> which yeah, makes me feel a little bit bad in retrospect. But uh, look, Oligona Solskjaer is a Manchester United fan uh, and you could see it in his eyes. You could see it in his interview, his exit interview. But there's... A bit of me that's cynical about this, that it is uh, kind of sums up the entire Solskjaer regime as, and his reign as, as weaponized nostalgia, as mm. Manchester United harking back to an era that no longer exists, trying to recapture it with OGS referring to Fergie as the gaffer the whole time. I don't think he ever saw himself as in charge at Manchester United. He was merely a steward of the legacy mm. of Sir Alex Ferguson. And I think sometimes 
you got to be your own man and you got to part with the past. And we've seen Fergie's interference with Manchester United since he departed. In, uh, what was it, 2011, 2012? Yeah, or 2013, I think. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, it, seems, it seems like an eternity ago, but he's still apparently influencing signings like Cristiano Ronaldo's return and uh, rocking up for a quote-unquote suit fitting at Carrington. Uh, but his presence looms over everything that the club does. And they can't seem to shake it. And by appointing one of his former charges, someone who clearly uh, holds him in such high esteem, I don't think that's helped the the transition for Manchester United into a new era. Obviously, OGS is uh, a symptom of the problem at United and not the cause. I don't have any ill will towards him as a person or anything. He just clearly wasn't up to the job and didn't know how to fit the talented squad into a coherent game plan. He had a lot of chances. He had a lot of second chances. Uh, you know, I don't think he's been hard done by whatsoever. Uh, he's obviously very upset with the way things have gone and it's emotional for him to leave. But that doesn't mean, you know, just because you like the guy, you should continue to employ him. Well, it's sort of a the similar thing. It's like imagine you're a boss of a company and you've got a guy who's just not performing, but he's mm. like the, the number one guy for culture and everyone just loves him because, you know, he brings muffins into work on a Monday and yeah, he's shouts great, great everyone coffee. The, great around the office. Yeah, great around the water favorite. cooler. Yeah, but just doesn't get the job done when mm. it comes to the KPIs. And that is literally Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to a T. Um, yeah. I mean, when you think about when he first came in, he was an interim boss, similar sort of strategy Manchester United employed at about the same time of the season when Jose Mourinho was sacked and they brought Ole in just to steady things and he went on that run and everyone kind of lost their minds and it was a bit of this fantasize that you know Ole is the man Ole is at the wheel and but I think this the issues at Manchester United run so much deeper than just Ole Gunnar Solskjaer it's really from the top you know it's the it's not a football club as Louis van Gaal and Jose Mourinho both said when they left mm. the club this is a this is a corporate entity that are just thinking about you know social media metrics and getting as many dollars as they can the director the, of football is a banker exactly and these replacement at the end of the season is not going to be that much better when Edward word leaves who I think same's Rob Rob young I think that's top of my head this think, yeah. comes from the same yeah. uh, school of operators as Ed Woodward he's so. the same guy that said when Odie Nagalo signs that Manchester United are number one trend on Twitter right now. It doesn't matter for what reason as Odion Igalo <laughs> was and what the, you know, the reaction he was getting on social media for his signing. Um, that's what they look at. And they looked at, you know, they boasted. I remember seeing so many posts on social media, especially on LinkedIn, you know, Manchester United have smashed social media uh, metrics with the announcement of Cristiano Ronaldo's return. But in reality, when you look at it from an on-field standpoint, Cristiano Ronaldo, as much as he scored goals, is roots to some of their issues in attack. But whoever takes over... Has got is taking over a squad that is severely imbalanced. Mm. From you know they've got some good good players. Don't get me wrong, this is a very talented team, but there's a big pitfall in the middle, and that's the midfield for them. And they haven't addressed it. Um, it found it felt kind of fitting that Donny Van der Beek scored the final goal of the Oligon Solskjaer <laughs> era. Um, considering that, you know, whoever takes over would be looking at him and probably hoping if you've got an element of having Donny van der Beek at your disposal that he's a central part of what happens with this team going forward. But I'm curious, you know, what happens from here? Because who's going to take over for six months after Michael Carrick gets, you know, has his try? And then who's going to want to take over at the end of the season? Because Conte's now gone. Um, as he's, he's now, you know, been snapped up by Spurs. And it seems like Maurizio Pochettino apparently is interested by the role at the end of the season. But there's something in between. There's still six months of football before that. Maybe Michael Carrick will be the man to lead United into the 21st century finally. I mean, it, look, 
I I'm hoping that the club doesn't get sucked in by the inevitable new manager bounce. Mm. Uh, are we going to see Rio Ferdinand saying, you know, Carrick's at the wheel? Are we going to get a Gary Neville handshake asking him where he wants his trophy built? I think that was a big part of the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer reign, the sort of propaganda machine that he mm. had around him of his own ex-teammates who felt either like they couldn't criticise him or were blinded by their own relationship yep. with him. Uh, and that that affected the discourse around the team. Uh, you mentioned Donny van der Beek. In the end, he became something of a lightning rod for criticism uh, uh, of Solskjaer. He became a little microcosm of all the problems at Manchester United, all these expensive new toys. You buy a guy for 30, 40 million pounds and you have no plan for how to deploy him. Yep. And so every time he came on, he was uh, greeted with rapturous applause from the home supporters in the dying days of the Solskjaer reign. Mm not because of his performances, but because of what he represented as a good player who was being wasted. Yeah. And maybe a new manager will be able to incorporate him and Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba into the same midfield. I don't think anyone can. But that's if Pogba's there next season. Yeah. That's the whole, that's the other elephant in the room. Is he going to be there next year for whoever takes over as the long-term new head coach? I'm not sure, even sure if, if uh, Donny van der Beek and Bruno Fernandes are compatible in the same midfield. No. And because that's, they kind of play the same position, very different mm. interpretations of that position. Uh, but van der Beek's most successful spell at Ajax was as, as the most advanced of a midfield three who had the freedom to break into the box late. Yeah. And the timing of those runs and his ability to uh, interpret space off the ball and find the right gap in the mm. defense and even move a team around when he didn't receive yeah. it was uh, outstanding. And he took a lot of pressure off Fran- Frankie de Jong at the base of the midfield by dragging players away from him and enabling him to get into 1v1 situations where he could just dribble past people and open up the whole pitch. Bruno Fernandes is a very demanding player. It's only he because the he's, ball, the second, yeah. he's the secondary ego in the team uh, that you know people are focusing on Ronaldo. But I think Fernandes on the pitch uh, affects the team in, in similar ways because he's always demanding the ball. It's so much throughput. It's everything mm. through him. He's always trying risky passes. He's always trying to play the killer pass. And that affects your build-up play quite significantly. Um, so as long as Ronaldo and Fernandez start, I'm not saying they're not good players, but the the team dynamic is quite clearly affected by those two and other midfielders aren't able to exert as much influence over the team. Well, you remember all those warnings when Ronaldo signs, like Fernandez and Ronaldo have mm. never been compatible playing for Portugal. There was always everyone saying they can't play together. And, and you seem to say the yeah. Portuguese national team. Yeah, well, that, that's that's what I was alluding to. Like at the, in the national team, they have never been mm. able to play together. Watching them at the Euros, it looked like... You I know, mean, good luck, good, good luck in the playoffs, Portugal. <laughs> well, you know? uh, yeah, it depends who they come up against. Yeah. But, I mean, that they're, they're facing their own issues. But for Manchester United going forward, forward I think this is an interesting six months that they've got to start making decisions as to who's going to be there beyond that period and someone they've got to have an idea of who's going to be there and who's not mm. um I wouldn't be surprised if van der Beek's gone in January because I think he'd just be fed up and want to get some regular minutes because well, it depends if, he, if Carrick uses him but that's not. but that's the thing it's it's a month he's got a month now to kind of make that decision but he might have already mentally checked out and might have thought I'd I've already got a guarantee in January to go somewhere and I'm going to start every week. There would be teams lining up and not just, you know, small mid-table Premier League sides like a, an Everton or an Aston Villa and say, come on, come down and play for six months. They'd be good teams. Like, I think Juventus are, are interested in him. I know that uh, Barcelona are interested in him. Tottenham should be. Tottenham, 100%. Um, there will be teams lining up for his signature, but... 
it's going to be an interesting six months and to see who lands as that manager, whether Maurizio Pochettino finally becomes the Manchester United manager because it's felt like he's been linked to that job for so long. Back to his days at Tottenham, you know, long before he even left, it's felt like it was inevitable that at some point Maurizio Pochettino was going to end up as the replacement for either Jose Mourinho or Louis van Gaal. But now it could actually happen because it has kind of felt like with Pochettino at PSG Mm. that he wasn't going to stick around for a long time. It's like I'm kind of here because I I need something to do. Like I need a job. And, you know, PSG offered me a position, but it's never felt like his heart's really been in it from the start. And maybe the Manchester United project is very, it's, it's an appealing project. You know, you get the opportunity to pick up a, a giant of world football and mold the team in your image. And I then you just, get a payout six months later. Absolutely. <laughs> and if it sacked. doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But hey, it would be, he'd be the best manager they've hired since Sir Alex in terms of what he could bring. Because Mourinho, yeah. I mean, at the time, you think about Louis van Gaal came off that amazing 2014 World Cup with the Dutch, but then in that, you know, he wasn't really compatible. And to be honest, that relationship at Manchester United was doomed from the word go. And Jose Mourinho... His magic had already run out by the time he took over. So I think this would be a good appointment for them. But other than that, the options aren't necessarily that great. Pochettino, I think, would be a good appointment. I'm not sure if he has a track record of dealing with uh, star players that well and incorporating them into his game plan. Mm. I don't think it's quite working at PSG at the moment. No. Um I think there are trade-offs there, whoever the manager is. Uh, we've seen with Thomas Tuchel how... You know, he had a mixed success at PSG and some high-profile falling outs and so forth and uh, some midfield selections that were clearly compromises. And then when he goes to Chelsea and he's got a more cohesive group, he's flying. Uh, With Pochettino, it may well be the same, but his Tottenham sides, everybody put in a shift. And how is the new manager going to deal with the ego dynamic with Ronaldo? Are they going to have the pulling power to be able to drop him and get away with that. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure if Pochettino has that kind of stature. One manager who would, I think, is uh, Zinedine Zidane because yeah. he's, he's proven he can work with Ronaldo and build a team to uh, sort of, uh, I guess, mitigate his shortcomings as a player. Mm. Uh, but he also had some of the best midfielders in the world yeah, behind Luka him. And, and also Zinedine Zidane, yeah. I see his name in every tabloid article every time the Manchester United job is mentioned. He doesn't speak English. No. So I can't see him taking that role on. Yeah. I think that's unlikely. I think he's destined to become France manager after the 2022 World Cup. Yeah. So uh, I, I think Pochettino would be an improvement on what's been there since Ferguson left, but I don't think it's a slam dunk appointment. I don't think it's a guarantee yeah. of success when Ronaldo is still kind of running everything at Manchester United. His influence looms large both in a tactical sense and in a personality sense. But he's also, bigger than the club. Absolutely. And this is now the interesting point you mentioned about Pochettino and then Zidane after that, there's not really anyone else that screams as if they're, they're, they're it. Like there's mm. someone that's actually available right now because everyone else, all the big names have been snapped up right now. It's not like there's a, a pool of managers lining up and it's not like there's a manager, you know, at a mid-table team in the, Premier, in the Premier League or in the other league that's screaming out to be appointed. The only other manager, this is left field and he's just picked up a new job. This is more just because I'd love to see him at a big club would be Roberto De Zerbi. Because uh, I would love to does see he speak him. English? I know, maybe not, but 
I tell you what, he's a bloody good manager. He's, he's great he's done fun, great but there's no but way the executives at Manchester United no, even, even know who this Roberto is fantasy booking is. Right here, Josh. This is fantasy booking. <laughs> it would be fun, but... It would be great. And there'd be a lot of people, I think, in the uh, the the football hipster community that would be like 100%. Yeah, yes. but there would be an even bigger community of people doing the Snoop Dogg meme and going, who? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love the guy, but he's not ready for Manchester United. Not okay. even close. Well, one guy that has already sort of proven that he's ready... Well... It's a small sample size. It's one game. But he's a club <laughs> legend that's taken over, and everyone said it's about bloody time that he's taken over as uh, Barcelona manager. That's Xavi. Mm. And uh, he had his first game in charge against Espanyol. 1-0 win. Um, according to the guys at El Chiringuito, uh, Memphis Depay threw himself to the ground, and they even did a reenactment in the studio. <laughs> Thomas and, Rancero. Yep. And Jose Pedro came running over and was like, what's going on here? It's like, oh, you've done a Memphis, you know. Um, but, I mean, from what we saw um, in terms of the starting 11, this was uh, this was exactly what we knew it was going to be, mm. the long-term approach. He had so many kids in this starting 11. So he had Gavi on one wing. He had Akomash on the other wing as well, who's only 17. And he also had Nico Gonzalez in midfield, who is also, I believe, He's 19 years old as well. He so sounds like a football manager region to he me. He does. I'm not, and not I'm, convinced that's a real person. We, we, it was funny how this is another small little plug of the uh, the national curriculum, how we spoke about the NRI index uh, yesterday and about Adama Traore. Nico Gonzalez must be second in terms of there's always a Nico Gonzalez floating <laughs> around somewhere. But in terms of getting a result and starting in the best way possible, beating a rival, um, having a massive crowd, the biggest crowd they've had in a very long time at the new Camp. Um, it's the perfect start, at least, for Barcelona. I know bigger tests are to come, mm-hmm. but hey, step in the right direction. Yeah. Xavi is a very prescriptive manager in the way he wants his team to play. He's a big uh, believer. He's a big drinker of the Barcelona Kool-Aid and the Cruyffian image of the club, their sort of self-image. He kind of embodies that. And I think a lot of uh, Kules will be very satisfied with mm-hmm. him in the dugout saying he is one of us. He will try and play quote-unquote, the right way. Uh, but when you've got a dressing room full of kids plus uh, washed-up players from the glory years that will need to be ushered out, how do you do that if you're they're your old mates from your playing days? How do you yeah. say, Sergi, it's time? Mm. Gerard Piquet, it's, it's time, time to go. Yeah. Jordi Alba, it's time, it's time to, to go. go. We can't pay you anymore. We've got 2 billion euros worth of debts racking up and you're eating up the wage budget. I, I, I think that dynamic is going to be very interesting to watch. Mm. Uh, but Barcelona have a manager who is going to at least attempt to play in a way that satisfies uh, their own uh, sense of themselves, their own self-image, and that's enough for the time being, yeah. given the position they're in. Kuman with his pragmatic signings of Dutch journeymen <laughs> and uh, his three-five-two, yeah. it wasn't going to fly. Even no. if he's a Barcelona former player, it was uh, that was heresy. So yeah. Xavi, as the true believer, the chosen one, he's back. And I'm sure Barcelona fan Nick Stoll is uh, absolutely licking his lips at the prospect. Absolutely. And I think that I was reading Xavi said after the game, he wanted to see a bit more attacking, a bit more, you know, he wasn't entirely pleased with the performance. He wanted to see more, more, more. And that's fair enough. I mean, it's one game. It's not necessarily a convincing win against Espanyol, but it's a step in the right direction. They played Benfica in the Champions League. Uh, this week, which if they do win, you'd think would lock in. I think it does lock in a spot in the round of 16, but we will talk about that one a little bit later on. Um, in terms of moving on, let's head to Italy because it was an absolute bonkers weekend in Serie A. <laughs> um, we were down in Geelong on Sunday morning, and um, when I saw the result of Milan Fiorentina, I was perplexed in terms of you know seeing the result because I didn't expect Milan to actually concede four goals. They've actually been pretty good defensively this season, but... 
The game in itself was a calamity of errors, but also really, um, I think it was actually kind of a due loss for Milan, but it was completely avoidable at the same time. Uh, Ciprian Tatarashanu, after being the hero in the derby, turned to Villa within 15 minutes, dropped an easy cross, Alfred Duncan slammed it in. Former Milan man, Ricardo Saponara, had his revenge game, scored a belter. And then some mistakes at the back from the likes of Teo Hernandez and Matteo Gabbia really cost them. But this is this was coming. This loss mm-hmm. was coming eventually. But when you have a look at the starting 11, this Milan team was nowhere near full strength defensively. Um, Fakaya Tomori injured just before the game. Davide Calabria injured. Mike Mignon still out. Apparently actually set to make a return this weekend after... Um, he's actually made a return four weeks ahead of schedule. And I reckon that the Milan guys have just said, hey, we're going to go the conservative approach. We're going to give you to December, but we saw what happened on the weekend. We need you back as soon as possible. Um, so, but in terms of the game itself, a lot for Milan to, a lot for Milan to mm-hmm. address, especially defensively. But Stefano Pioli did say, heads are still up. It's a loss, but we've got to band together and this is what's going to happen. So, you know what? Bad loss, but it's okay. Is the Champions League over for Milan? Uh, just about. But if they could somehow scrape a win at, at, at Atleti this week, it does keep it somewhat alive. It also depends on Liverpool getting a result against Porto. They beat Porto at Anfield. Four it games def- played, one point. Doesn't scream progress no, to me. But, but we've got to look at the games, you know, with a bit of context a few, here, Josh. A few penalties were The Atleti awarded. game was completely... I'm not even going to go into that Atleti okay. home tie. I'll blow we a gasket. We was robbed. Very much. De, very Milan much so. fan, Nick Dubano. Yes, and then also as well, um, I think the two, the last two games against Porto were, were fair, but the Liverpool mm-hmm. game as well, though, they, as much as they were dominated, I think that they probably were value for a point, considering the goals that they copped, especially uh, in the second half. You know, just some poor defending and also Jordan Henderson scoring an absolute fluke. Um, but we won't dive into that too much. But Why did Matteo Garbia start in central defence? Ahead of Alessio Romagnoli. Yeah. I wouldn't, well, Romagnoli is coming off an injury. Okay. But also I wouldn't be surprised if he's being rested up for the Atleti game on the weekend. Um, but it's also been a case oh, of... midweek, you mean. Midweek, sorry. Um, but also as well, there are a lot of big games to come. And Romagnoli has had some injuries. Um, Garbia hasn't played much at all this season. He only played 70 minutes against Venezia this season. So it was his first... First minutes since September. Lack of um, depth at centre back for Milan, or is no, it just injury no. crisis? Gabi has got a very bright future. It's just a crisis right now. Okay. A few guys out. Kalulu can also play as a centre back, but with Calabria out, Florenzi just coming back from injury as well. You sort of have to as well, kind of accommodate for that too. Mm-hmm. But the game really changed as well once they made those subs um, in the second half. Again, similar thing with Pioli. He's tended to. Um, not get his 11 right again. Um, but I think once the adjustments were made, they were right back in it. They got it back to 3-2 and Teo Hernandez making a terrible mistake at the back leading to that fourth goal. You know, that that's really what cost it's them in the end. Coach killers, those errors. I mean, Absolutely. the Tatarashanu uh, fumble was, was one for the blooper reel at the end of the season. You that know, was... I was expecting a lot more of that during this period because he did it a lot last season when he got his rare mm-hmm. opportunities and he'd played pretty well before this period. I and mean, then he saved the penalty in the Milan he derby. So. He, was competent at, uh, he was competent between the sticks before Does he have period. a handling problem? Is yeah. it like a skill set issue or is it just a, a he's, big He's had a few fight. of these issues. He's had a few so of them. So good shot stopper, not but very handling, confident, yeah. claiming crosses. And okay. also he is technically the third string goalkeeper because our second stringer, Alessandro Plizzardi, who's also a very good young Italian goalkeeper, um, is also out for like six months. He tore his meniscus. Right. So that's another thing. Okay. Technically Milan's goalkeepers right now, they're third and fifth string 
stringer because Antonio Morante was actually signed as a free agent to come in and replace. But anyways, let's move on to the other game because Milan fans really breathe a sigh of relief this morning when Inter beat Napoli. Got Inter back into the title race, but it just keeps Napoli, you know, right in touching distance. AC Milan cheering for the other side of the city. Yeah, I morning. never thought the day would come, but this was also an absolutely bonkers game. But for Inter, a massive result right back in the title race um, and another really fun game, but a massive three points for Inter. Yeah, a uh, big result. I was... Uh, quite perplexed as to some of the individual mistakes, again, playing out from the back. Mm. I guess uh, that's kind of what Inzaghi does in terms of organizing his press and, uh, you know, the the 3-5-2, very disciplined shape, maybe more difficult to play through that uh, than usual for, for Napoli, but it was still uncharacteristic um, from, the you know, the likes of Koulibaly. Mm. I, I thought some of the uh, decision-making uh, was a bit poor and, also, the standard of goalkeeping in this game, not that high. Not great either, no. I mean, you've got Davide Espino who yeah, has his limitations. To be honest, he Han- should be the backup, okay. in my opinion. But anyways, go on. Um, and also Handanovic, who's not really at the no, standard I- he used to be. I felt that the diving save attempt he mm. made, um, which actually he did manage to save off a header, I think it might have been a Mertens header, it came off his palm yeah, and then and spun sort of, the other yeah. way over the crossbar. It was one of the luckiest saves I've ever seen. So uh, he doesn't fill me with confidence. Let's say. You know, a lot of Inter fans recently have said that about Handanovic is that it's getting to a point in his career where he is getting older. Mm. Um, he's been a brilliant servant at Inter for a very, very long time, but it's getting to that stage now where a lot of Inter fans are saying, like, he's performances aren't consistent enough. Even last season when they won the league, he wasn't that great. Um, he was kind of bailed out by having such a good defense around him. But um, in terms of this game, the really disappointing news was Victor Osserman is going to be out now for just over a month. He had a fracture in his cheek, uh, multiple facial fractures, really nasty incident. Um, so he's going to be out for quite some time just before so AFCON. Lucky. Yeah, just before AFCON well, as well. Maybe that's a blessing in disguise yeah. for Napoli. They can stop him from going and then keep him in cotton Absolutely, wool for the Absolutely, but I mean, if Nigeria come calling, he has to go. Yeah, it kind so. of has to. So, you know, it's kind of the, the unwritten sort of ground rules when it comes to international well, it, it football. Well, it actually is a written rule for FIFA. Yeah, you have well, to make yeah, your players available. American but players. if there's an injury cloud, they might be able to... Tack on a few a extra bit. weeks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we'll see. Put him in the Batman mask, get him back out in Serie <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope that he could stick around because it'd be great for the league um, and seeing him play throughout January. But in terms of for me as a Milan fan, the title race, I'd be happy for him to go to AFCON because we're losing our fair share of players uh, as well. International football is more important. If, if if he's fit, he should go. Absolutely. I'm, I'm just teasing. Just before we uh, go to Chris McLaughlin, we'll take a break in just a sec as well. Uh, just a quick side note from the Roma game this morning. They did beat Genoa 2-0, but the great story out of it was young Ghanaian striker Felix Afenejan scoring a double in the last 10 minutes, um, dedicating that final goal as well to his mum. Uh, real heartwarming scenes. The goal he scored, the second goal, was unbelievable. Like, just got the mm-hmm. ball, picked up his own ball, slammed it from range right into the top corner. Um, big result for Roma. Uh, but also as well, I mean, if we're going to tie in a bit of Australian news, it's good news if you're a keen follower of Christian Volpato that maybe Mourinho might give some more kids a chance down the track. But Felix Afenijan has not just Roma fans excited, but many Ghanaian fans as well, who as they progress to the next round of World Cup qualifying. But uh, good news at least. Mourinho said he had a team but not a squad. Maybe some of these young boys like Afenijan is uh, proving him wrong. Absolutely. And, uh, is he going to get a call-up uh, to the Ghanaian national team? We'll have to ask producer Pakua. Hang on, we're getting, we've got, we've got Pakua, uh, our producer, who is, Speaking who is Ghanaian. Um, Afenijan? 18-year-old striker from Roma. 
Felix. Call him up. Get him in the national team. Afena hyphenated John, like a small Gian. <laughs> Never heard of him. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I guess he's not on the national I team thought, radar. I, I thought he got called up. But anyways, let's take a short break. Or Chris McLaughlin waiting for us on the other side of this. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Euro Show here on FNR Football Nation Radio. Nick DeBano and Josh Parrish here. Big show so far. We've obviously dived into all things Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, a little bit of going on in Serie A and also the big news with Xavi. Um, we didn't get the exact pronunciation, I don't believe, of Afenajan. The young uh, Roma striker. Felix who our, our Ghanaian producer had no idea who he was, so here we go. Even though he played for the national team in oh. the last international break. But <laughs> anyways, let's move on. We're joined here by BBC Scotland's Chris McLaughlin. Chris, welcome to the program. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Yeah, quite well, Chris. Um, I mean, it's been a big weekend over in Scotland. Some big results in the League Cup. Um, Celtic getting through. Another win for Ange Postacoglu. How would you see it? Yeah, I mean, listen, first of all, you're right, the uh, the Ange Postacoglu bandwagon just keeps rolling on for Celtic, doesn't it? Um, and I can see that makes you guys happy. It certainly makes the Celtic fans happy. Uh, St Johnston was, was always going to be tough. Uh, they're very good under Callum Davidson, very difficult to break down. I know that, that Postacoglu was expecting a tough game. That's exactly what he got. Um, but listen, you know, we know his style. The fans know his style, the opposition managers know his style, and he puts everything on his players being better than the opposition and him being able to break down the opposition with that, you know, gung-ho style of his. And it works. It, it, it just works. It, so far, it's been working. It worked against St. Johnson on well, at the weekend there. And it, it took perhaps a little bit longer than, than some fans may have expected or wanted, but he got the result and he's into the final. The Ange Postacoglu bandwagon you mentioned, just what do you put it down to, his popularity among Celtic fans? It seems almost universal, regardless of results. They're on board, they're with him for the long haul. How did he manage to get everybody on side? Do you know what? I remember talking to you guys when when the appointment was made and I said to you, I made the point, look, the Celtic fans will get behind their manager. They will. They, until such a time where he starts to make a bit of a mess of it, they will fully get behind their man. And I think there's also something to be said about them throwing their weight behind an underdog because he wasn't first choice for Celtic. We know that Eddie Howe was was courted for months and months and he eventually turned it down. But Postacoglu has been something of a dark horse. He wasn't well known here. We've discussed that on this programme before. Um, And I think the Celtic fans like the fact that he's an underdog and doing very well. Not only that, He's got this very obvious style that fits so well with the Celtic ethos. He likes to attack. It's just attack, attack, attack. The Celtic fans love that. That is traditionally how Celtic play. But also, I think there's a a saying here in in Scotland that sometimes we just like the cut of the jib. They just just like how Ange Postacoglu comes across. He's never ruffled. He's never phased. He's pretty calm. He just gives it off this aura of, hey, guys, I've got this. You know, I'll worry about it. I've got it. And so far, he has got it. 
I mean, you do mention like the whole thing about he's got it, and there was a period at the start where the results weren't really going Ange's way, and there was the 4-0 loss against Leverkusen, and things have really turned around. What have you put it down to? Have you just put it down to them starting to, I guess, gel and get used to the system, and now they're just starting to run roughshod through the league? Or what, what have you sort of seen from, I guess, what you've seen every week? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. First and foremost, you have to remember where Celtic were when Posta Coglu came in. Now, they were a shambles, let's face it. You know, on and off the pitch, they were a bit of a shambles. They had enjoyed a decade of complete dominance in Scottish football. The fans were used to it. And then all of a sudden, in the pursuit of, of 10 titles in a row, it all just exploded, or imploded, I should say. So it, it, it was going to take a bit of time. I think that his style is probably something that the players have had to get used to. I mentioned the fact that, yes, Celtic like to play gung-ho. That wasn't necessarily the style under Neil Lennon. Um, so I think the players have probably taken a little bit of time to get used to his style and perhaps just a little bit of time to get used to Ange the man. But that's coming together. You can see you can see exactly how they play. You can see exactly how they move up and down the pitch as a unit. Kyogo, of course, has been has been the, the big, big find. Yota as well, of course. So it's just clicking at the right time. Now, the caveat, of course, has to be that at the back, they're still a little bit, maybe not naive, but still a little bit ropey at the back sometimes. That's, that's getting better. You very rarely see a Celtic game these days where they don't concede, although that is starting to turn. Um, so I think that the defence perhaps is the last part of the jigsaw to, to, to fall into place, but I think that's getting there. So I think it's been a number of factors, but you can see that for post call clues, all just coming together. Talk to me about Joe Hart, Chris, because I thought it was curious when he signed, not because of his pedigree. Obviously, he's got great experience, but because he was the very goalkeeper that Pep Guardiola, who Ange Postacoglu is maybe an acolyte of, uh, dumped at Manchester City because of his inability to play out from the back with his feet. Is it just a, a matter of it being a different level in Scotland or has Ange seen something different in Joe Hart that led him to, to go for him? Well, I think if Celtic fans and fans of Scottish football are being honest, they know that they would not have got Joe Hart as absolute prime. And that's what we get here in Scottish football. Sometimes we get big players who are perhaps coming to the end of their career and think they've got something to prove. And I think that's perhaps what we've got here with Joe Hart. There's no doubt that that Joe Hart's a, a fantastic goalkeeper. He's a great shot stopper. He's got real game intelligence. But anyone who watched the game at Hamden at the weekend will have known also, he's also got the odd mistake in him. You know, sometimes it's a little bit nervy under Joe Hart, not the way perhaps it was under under certain other goalkeepers at Celtic in, in recent years. But yeah, I think it's, it's come at the perfect time for Joe Hart because perhaps he wasn't feeling the love down south and he feels like he's got something to prove. Not only that, as we mentioned with, with Postacoglu, the Celtic fans really get behind people. The club. They really do. I mean, you, you very rarely get someone who moves on from Celtic who will not say, look, you know, the, the, I just felt the love from the fans. And Hart's feeling that. He's, he's a hero at Celtic now. And, look, you know, who doesn't want to be a hero, I suppose, eh? 
It feels like things have kind of come full circle for this Friday, Chris. I mean, Leverkusen away, big game, chance to keep their chances of progressing to the next round alive, I guess. How do you see this contest? I mean, Leverkusen are fourth in the Bundesliga, but Celtics form, you know, they, they would consider themselves a chance in this one. Listen, I think, I think they think they've probably got more than a chance, to be honest. I think that, that Ange Postecoglou and his players will be thinking that Leverkusen won't fancy won't fancy playing Celtic at this stage. Um, you're right; they're, they're fourth in the Bundesliga. We know how how um, how strong German football is, but I think that the confidence in Celtic is such, and their ability, the confidence and their ability to score goals is such that they know that no matter who they play against, there's a decent chance they're going to score um, at least one goal. So. I very, I'm very, very um, reticent to say that there's any teams that Celtic could come up against right now who they wouldn't fancy their chances against on their day. Now it's got to be, it's got to fall for them. Perhaps Leverkusen have got to have an off day, but it's a game they need to win. They know that. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you. I think there's a decent chance for Celtic. I really do. I want to talk about Postacoglu improving the players that he already had at the club because obviously there's been massive turnover and lots of signings. Uh, but based on extremely small sample sizes and my initial you know, curiosity about the Postacoglu project, I watched that, I think it was the Champions League qualifier against Michelin and immediately yeah. made up my mind about two players who were not good enough. And they both started in this League Cup <laughs> semifinal. Nia Bitten with that red card. I thought, this guy's a hothead. Get him out of here. And then uh, uh, Anthony Ralston, the right back, who... Uh, seems to have a, had a bit of a renaissance. I thought this guy's got wood box for feet. How is he going to play out from the back under Postacoglu? And he's starting every game and seemingly excelling. So uh, these players seem to be taking to the coaching methods. Yeah, you're right. And I think that let's start with Beaton first. I think that your thoughts on near Beaton were shared by many, many Celtic <laughs> fans. Trust me, because he was finding himself in silly positions, rash challenges. And he'd kind of lost his way near Beaton. He was never a he was never a Celtic favourite. He was never even really under under Rogers or under Lennon. He was never the first name of the team sheet near Beaton. But and, and he, I think that the other thing that he suffers from is because he is a utility player. Okay, mainly midfield, but he can play in that centre half position as well. He's never really found himself in terms of. Look, you know, near Beaton is going to be your your centre half, and near Beaton is going to be your uh, your midfielder. I think he's struggled a little bit with that in the past, but he's feeling the love, he's feeling the confidence now, and the Celtic fans have started to understand what they can get from near Beaton. That the fact that you are a utility player is actually something to be celebrated, and he's getting the best out of that. There's no doubt. I think this is probably the best Beaton has played in his time at Celtic. As for Ralston. I don't know, is, is the honest answer. I'm, I'm with you. Ralston, when he broke through at Celtic a few years ago, had promise, but no more than that. He looked quite raw. Now, he looks like one of the most accomplished right-backs in Scottish football. He's an incredible player at the moment. I've, I've watched him in recent games do things that I didn't think Anthony Ralston was capable of. And all I can put that down to is the fact that perhaps Andrew Postecoglou has put his arm around him and said, you are my right back. That was never the case mm-hmm. for Anthony Ralston and he's really made that position his own. He's turning into a very good player. He also may well have looked at the, across um, the midfield, uh, sorry, across the back line to where Kieran Tierney used to be and thought, you know what, if I knuckle down, if I really prove myself, why not? 
why why can't I make the big jump up to an English Premiership side? So maybe there's a little bit of that as well. I think some of the Socceroos players have talked about the kind of individual speeches that they would get from Postacoglu and the confidence and the sort of glow that they would feel when they, they got his approval and his, his backing. And I think that's that's borne out by the Ralston story. And speaking of feeling the love, I mean, Ange certainly is as well from the supporters. They finally managed to work his name into a song, uh, a Christmas-themed one at that. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is a bit of a Celtic story in general, to be honest. Quite a few managers have had this last Christmas, I Gave You My Heart. Um, I'm not going to sing it, I'm sorry. Uh, but you're right, uh, they have. And he is, you're right. What I've noticed actually in recent games is Postacoglu is making his way over, especially in away games, making his way over to the Celtic fans and really appreciating the, the, the love that he's getting from them. He's not a guy who shows emotion very often. Um, I think we can all agree on that. Either way, you know, up or down. But we have seen in recent weeks a little bit more uh, emotion from from him. I don't know if we're going to see that continuing. I thought you guys will know better than me in terms of what's in the uh, the emotional locker. I don't know. Um, but he he does. He does. He's a fascinating character to watch. Actually, I mean, I've, I've interviewed so many managers on the touchline, and he just has a real self-assured way about him. He's got a, a, a really, really deep confidence in his own ability to, to get things done, and you know, I think that's obviously that's obviously coming across to the players as well, and the fans are feeling it. Well, I can definitely tell you, Chris, that the keeps his emotions very much in that locker of his, and that doesn't change a hell of a lot from what you've already seen. But in terms of Rangers at the moment, the the gap is closing, and they're entering a new era right now under Giovanni Van Bronckhorst. And they lost mm-hmm. against Hibs on the weekend, and Connor Goldson said after the game they've lost their hunger. What 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 did you see on the weekend? Have you noticed a bit of a change? I know that it is one game, and Gerard leaving does leave a massive chasm. But w- what have you seen? What I saw yesterday at Hamden was what I've been seeing with Rangers all season, to be honest. They've not been great. They've, there have been rumblings for weeks now that perhaps they've lost their hunger, that they were a bit of a, a one-season wonder, uh, this group of players. They gave so much into stopping Celtic do 10 in a row that the feeling perhaps from some was, you know, was that it? Is, is that enough for them now? I know that there's also suggestions that quite a number of the players are looking to move on. If you take what happened to Celtic in the 10-in-a-row season, that's exactly what happened there. A lot, of this, a lot of the players had their heads turned and it affected their ability to do their job. I think Van Bronckhurst, you're right, has got a big job to do. One of the major problems, of course, is if he's looking to rebuild... Where's the money coming from? Because Rangers recently posted £23 million of losses. They don't have a lot of money to burn. Celtic are expected to strengthen further in January. So there's a big, big issue there. Now, you would also have to assume that for Giovanni Van Bronckhurst to take that job, he was given some assurances about how he could stamp his own authority on that team. You might well see players heading out of the door. I'm not yet ready to write off Rangers' chances. They're still four points clear. They're still, they've still got very good players in their squad. I think it's neck and neck. But I think if Celtic can strengthen the way the fans want them to strengthen and Rangers struggle to do that, you might well see Celtic pull away. 
Is Steven Gerrard's decision to leave for Aston Villa a bit of a sign then that he was on a hiding to nothing there? He'd already won the league title. He'd stopped Celtic winning 10 in a row, almost in impossible circumstances with the financial situation you talk about and this amazing feat that he's pulled off. I mean, doing it again wouldn't have the same impact, right? So going to a team who are cashed up with Premier League TV money, I mean, I saw a lot of Rangers fans very angry about this and saying, oh, Rangers is a bigger club than Aston Villa. Well, if you look at the bank balance, uh, you know, that that could be a determining factor for a manager who wants to progress his career and maybe have a bigger transfer spend. Yeah, listen, I know that we are pundits and our job as pundits is to really delve deep into things, but I think we overthink this one, to be honest. Mm. I think as soon as Aston Villa came calling for Steven Gerrard, there was never a doubt. I don't think he was ever going to say no. Um, It's the English Premier League. Um, It is perhaps a better stepping stone to Liverpool, where we all know he ultimately wants to be. You know, Villa spent well in excess of 100 million, I think 150 million over the past couple of Mm -hmm. seasons. Um, And... You're right. You know, what else could Steven Gerrard do at Rangers? He was given a remit to stop Celtic doing 10 in a row. He did that. He had some success in European football. Everything that Steven Gerrard had to prove in Scotland, I think he felt that he'd proved. But you know what? Even if he hadn't and Villa had come calling, he would have gone. I, I think I think we looked far too much into it. I think that he was never going to stay. And he's taken all his coaching staff with him. I mean, the assistant coach yeah. is uh, widely heralded as the, the brains behind it, the, uh, the tactical setup and so forth is gone and all the other staff with him. And it's just Jermaine Defoe sitting lonely in the, the Sky Sports studio. <laughs> it's strange, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, I think you're right. I think that one of the, one of the key factors to Gerard's success was the backroom team that he built, and it's no it's no um, surprise that he's taken them. Michael Beale, in particular, was a very very well respected coach, or is a very well respected coach, and I suspect he'll do very well. And that does leave a big big gap at Rangers. It's still to be determined who Giovanni Van Bronckhurst will bring in. But listen, we know whenever there's a change of of manager at a big club like Rangers there's always going to be a transition period and it's just a case of seeing how he can navigate those waters at a time where they can't afford to to, to go on any further with this uh, performance lump. And in terms of the team that beat them, Hibs, they've had a a bit of a poor run of form heading into that game, but they came out of nowhere to win that and Martin Boyle got a hat-trick to his name as well, I guess. We would all shocked at all at the manner in which that they won and also the fact that Martin Ball got himself three to his name too? Yeah, first of all, I have to take up with you guys. How did you manage to get Martin Boyle? <laughs> no, he's he's born, born in Aberdeen and hey, he's turning well, we out gave you, We gave you Lyndon Dykes, so... Uh, good you know. Yeah, okay, I'll take that. That's a fair point, a fair point. Um, was I surprised? No and yes. You're right, Hibs had lost four in the bounce coming into this game. Um, Jack Ross has had an up and down start to his managerial career at Hibs but they've got good players I think that most people feel that they've not been playing to the sum of their parts this season and also there's a real niggle between Hibs and Rangers ever since that cup final in 2016 um, where where, uh, Hibs famously ended 114 years without that trophy there has been a little bit of a niggle so I think sometimes in these games, you know what football's like, guys, sometimes if you win your first battles, 
if you show the hunger and show the desire early on in the game, you can tell right away who's going to win. And to be honest, from the first 10, 15 minutes, I thought it was Hibs. I really did. I think that, that the Rangers' heads went down and, and Hibs just showed the desire. Listen, Boyle was great. It was great. Um, and I think he'll go on to be an even better player for Hibs this season. But yeah, it, it didn't really surprise me that much. Chris, one last one before we let you go. It'd be remiss of us not to ask about the national side at the moment. I mean, they're flying. They've won six in a row. They beat Denmark just at the end of that qualification phase. Uh, is this it? Is this? Are you at all confident if the players line up correctly? I know there's some daunting teams in there, but it, can the drought finally come to an end? Guys, I'm still at some point thinking I'm going to wake up and think this was all a dream <laughs> because... I've covered football since the late 1990s and, you know, I'm 40, I don't mind admitting I'm 45 years old and I have never seen a Scotland team play the way this Scotland team is playing. And you know what? Even if we don't make the World Cup, it, you know, we're playing so, so well. We've had some amazing victories. That game against Denmark was probably the best I've seen Scotland ever play. Um do we have a chance? It's going to depend. It's going to really depend on who we get in the playoffs. But as Ali McCoy rightly said after the game against Denmark, I don't think that anyone in those playoff games, given the way Scotland are playing right now, will fancy playing us. And I can't remember the last time I ever said that. <laughs> so I am taking everything that there is to get from Scotland right now. And the World Cup will take care of itself. Uh, you're welcome, by the way, for, uh, for Aussie John Sutar as well. So, no one in the bag for Scotland. Uh, Chris, thank you so Absolutely. much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure to speak to you uh, and get an update on Andrew And uh, we look forward to speaking to you again before the season's out. All the best, guys. Thank you. Chris McLaughlin joining us from BBC Scotland. Uh, a lot happening over there at the moment. Really exciting stuff, especially for the national team too. Mm. We know, obviously, our good friend Lockie Flanagan is absolutely buzzing right now <laughs> in terms of how they're performing. Josh, we'll take a really, really quick break. On the other side of this, we'll dive into a little bit of the UEFA Champions League. Big ga- big round of games, really, match mm. day five. Might even dive into a little bit of Europa League just to touch on that massive Celtic-Leverkusen game coming up on Friday. Don't go anywhere here on the Euro Show. the Euro show. We've just received word that if you've been watching on Twitch, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you have, you've seen our lovely faces for the entire few minute, <laughs> uh, minute or so during that break. So, all right. uh, usually you know, Nick takes his clothes off between breaks. Absolutely. So it's just as well he, uh, he kept it on. <laughs> usually it's a wardrobe change. So yeah, that, that's, that's for the paid subscribers only. Absolutely. Subscribe to our Patreon. <laughs> uh, anyways, we've had a big show. D- dived into basically everything. We had Chris McLaughlin on just uh, before the break. If you missed any of it, head over to our Wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, mm-hmm. Be Google sure Podcasts, wherever yep. it might be, uh, tune into that one. Even SoundCloud, um, great chat, chatting all things Scottish football and Rangers, Lyndon Dykes, the Scottish national football team, Hibs. It's really exciting what's going on over there. But let's touch on the away for Champions League match day five. Uh, we're getting towards the end of the group stage. Some sides in the last match day sealed their passage to the round of 16. It all kicks off on Wednesday 
a real, real smorgasbord of action. And the game that really stands out for me is Chelsea versus Juventus at Stamford Bridge. Juve won the reverse fixture 1-0. Uh, that's when we all thought the Death Star were back. I mean, they did beat Lazio over the weekend. But that's really the pick of the games on the Wednesday. Mm-hmm. But in terms of storyline, Manchester United's first game post-Ole uh, over against Villarreal on the road. It's a big, big game because Manchester United, they were scraping over the line their last few games. That's why they're kind of top of the group right now. I can tell you how this one's going to go. I'm looking into the crystal ball here, Nick. Uh, Ronaldo's going to drop a 2 out of 10 and then score in the last minute to equalize. Well, I think Unai Emery might have something up his sleeve for this one. I think he's got the, got the blackboard out. You think it's going to be a good evening? It could be. And I have this sense that there might be a little bit of a bounce under Michael Carrick. There always is. I mm. get the sense this game probably end up as a draw, but Villarreal playing for their lives as well. So it's going to it's gonna be a very tasty mm. affair. Uh, Barcelona-Benfica as well at 7 o'clock. Xavi's first Champions League game. We did say Barca mm-hmm. win and they're in. Massive game there at the new Camp. Uh, it would set up a big game against Bayern in match day six. So a lot to look forward to there. On Thursday, massive games all around. Probably the pick of them, though, is Manchester City versus Paris Saint-Germain over in Manchester. Not the best French accent right there. PSG, I, I think that was like Venezuelan. Or yeah, something. I went with the Germain, not, not like Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, Actually, I think you were from, that was Kazakhstan. <laughs> don't, don't, don't even okay. make me will that accent out. But anyways, um, PSG won the return fixture over in Paris. I think it was 2-1 in that one. That was mm-hmm. a real hotly contested game. It was the, um, uh, the Leo Messi goal, wasn't it? It was, um, but this time around. We're in Manchester. It's going to be a massive affair. Can't wait for that one. If you're keeping your eye on some of the other games as well, some of the other storylines, Atletico Madrid versus Milan at the Wanda Metropolitano. This is a big game for Milan. Win and they still are somehow alive. And we'll It's a big game for Atletico as well. It is. Atleti also They're need third. to win and Porto get themselves in. Second. in. Porto in yep. upsetting the apple card in the group of death. Well, they have. They got How many their... cliches can I fit into one sentence? <laughs> it's the last chance saloon. Yes, it Atletico is. Atletico Madrid and AC Milan. And it basically, as you said, upset the apple card. And it really has. Um, Porto do play Liverpool. Anfield, Liverpool are through to the next round, but you know they're still going to take these games really seriously. You know that, that's such a Jurgen Klopp mm. thing to treat these games as like it's a as it's like it's a cup final, and we know that it's not going to be easy for Porto because last time they played, we saw what happened in that one. I think Liverpool should do the opposite and roll out their F- no. F- FA Cup lineup. No, 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 yeah, no, no, get, no. Give the kids some minutes. We need Liverpool to win, and we need Milan to win to you keep know, their hopes alive. You know, you could have, find another Harvey Elliott in there. To be honest, though, uh, Josh, to sum it up, they can do that in match day six if Milan is still alive, the Sun City, or to keep our hopes alive. Agendas at play. I'm going to be watching uh, none of those games. I'm going to be watching, well, maybe the Wednesdays. But on Thursday, my attention will be firmly focused on the Bolshaya Sportivnaya Arena. And you know why? Because Sheriff are in town. Yes, the Sheriff is, is in, in town. town. And Real Madrid will be quaking in their boots after... <laughs> Uh, what happened last time these two sides <laughs> met? I can't do a. Um, I can't really do off the. That's better. 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 A bit too much it. wind in the mic there. That's anyway. it. I could have just gotten the song up, but we don't want to get done for royalty-free music. But that's going to be a big game. So remember what happened last time in Madrid? It was Sheriff who did come up trumps, but Inter as well in a big game against Roberto de Zerbi, Shakhtar Donetsk, um, at four forty-five that morning. If you're going to be up. On Friday morning for the Europa League as well, you want three days straight of great quality football. Um, big game as well between Celtic and Bayer Leverkusen at 4.45. Celtic looking to keep their hopes alive in that one too. Rangers as well against Sparta Prague. Uh, Locomotive Moscow against Lazio. West Ham against Rapid Vienne. And arguably the best social media account in the game, Spartak Moscow, on Thursday morning. <laughs> 
coming up against the league leaders in Serie A, Napoli. That's going to be a cracking contest, but a lot to look forward to throughout the Champions League and the Europa League and also going into this weekend in European football. So really can't wait to get into it. Yeah, it's going to be a big week. We're going to see some uh, decisive results in European competitions midweek. Uh, and it's going to be very instructive, I think. But, uh, Nick, about time for us to go. Big thank you to BBC Scotland's Chris McLaughlin and big thank you to you. Absolutely, Josh. Uh, from myself, Nick Tabano, and obviously, as you said, Josh, this has not been the best outro. But anyways, uh, we'll see you again next Monday. Mr. Smooth from- over here on the mic. It's been a long morning, Josh. A long, very, very long day and a long morning. But anyways, uh, we'll be back again next Monday from 7pm here on FNR Football Nation Radio.